This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're talking today with Father Isaac Morales. He's a Dominican priest who is currently a professor at Providence College in Rhode Island. But before that, he hailed from Chicagoland, spent time in civil engineering, got his Master of Theological Studies from Notre Dame, and a PhD in New Testament from Duke University. He taught as a layman in the theology department of Marquette from 2007 to 2011, and in 2012, He joined the Order of Preachers, the Dominicans, and was ordained to the priesthood in May of 2018. Father Morales, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I have in my hands this book from Baker Academic, fantastic publisher, part of the series of A Catholic Biblical Theology of the Sacraments. Uh, The book by Father Isaac is The Bible and Baptism, The Fountain of Salvation. What first uh, drew your interest in the topic of of baptism. Obviously, there's multiple sacraments, there's multiple books to be written. Was this uh, something that that you had a profound interest in to begin with, or is this kind of commissioned and drawn out of you? A bit of both. Uh, so this particular project kind of fell into my lap. I was invited to write this volume, but the reason was because I had, um, I had published an essay on baptism and union with Christ in a collection on the theme of union with Christ in Paul's letters. Uh, so long before, long ago, before I joined the order, about 12 years ago or so, uh, as you were reading my biography, I noticed it says, I taught at Marquette from 2000 to 2011, and then I answered in 2012. People have been wondering, well, what was I doing that year in between? Um, I was in Munich uh, because I had received a uh, fellowship from the German government to work on a research project, and I was going to do a project on baptism in, in Paul's letters. Um, and it didn't get very far. I got I got a few essays out of it, but I never ended up doing a whole book out of it. But um, but one of those essays was what prompted the editors of this series to ask me to mm-hmm. to write the volume. Um, and I think I I was drawn to baptism in Paul because um, as a Catholic, I wanted to do something that was a little bit more Catholic uh, than my dissertation. It, I was happy with it. I think it was a fine piece of work, uh, but it was. I don't want to say generic, but it wasn't. There wasn't anything particularly Catholic about it. Obviously, I was writing as a Catholic, and I wasn't. You know, I was seeking to be um, faithful to the tradition, of course. But I wanted to do something that was a little bit more distinctively uh, Catholic, and the sacraments are clearly uh, something that really characterizes uh, our tradition and our practice. Yeah, I've heard people do apologetics about baptism to talk about maybe the importance of the sacrament, mainly from trying to justify the Catholic perspective of baptism over and against the Protestant perspective of baptism, specifically in that that very um that transition of grace, that that something is actually being done and it's not just an act that we do. It's not something that we have come up with for ourselves or even just merely an act of obedience. But as we do obey the command of Christ and go into that that place of receiving baptism, we receive something uh, supernatural. We receive a grace and and an ontological change. And so I've heard that kind of of uh, apologetic work around baptism, but I love what you do in this book in searching out the meaning 
and, and giving fuller context to our understanding of of what's actually happening here, and not just for our own story, but how that story relates to our family history all throughout scriptures. We get that a little bit in the in the rite of baptism, where the prayer is said over the waters, uh, where the the priest lays out for us this history of God and water, starting with the story of creation, going to Noah and the flood, talking about all these times that were saved through water, uh, all the way up to the water coming out of his side, giving us this deep typology of water and our relationship to it as we then approach baptism. And you mentioned that that history in the introduction, and you also mentioned something else, this importance of understanding not only the scriptural uh, aspects of baptism, but the the Jewish foundations that that come into into play in Scripture. Uh, not just understanding the text with our own hermeneutic, but putting on different eyes and seeing a different hermeneutic to it. So I wonder if you could start there and tell us what you see as the importance of of searching out that Jewishness in the way that we currently practice our baptisms. Yeah, well, so to go back a little bit to what you began with, with uh, saying that this is not an apologetic approach to scripture, that, uh, to baptism rather, that was precisely part of the goal of the series is it's, it's not apologetic in nature. It's really more uh, plumbing the mysteries of the sacraments and trying to come to a deeper understanding and appreciation of them. And um, I mean, the Jesus and the writers of the New Testament were themselves Jewish. Uh, and so if you really want to understand, there's a great quotation that I use um, that I take from Jean Danielu um, at the very beginning of the um, of the book, of the introduction. So Danielu himself says, baptism was born in the land of Israel. We must interpret the material elements which it uses as a symbol according to the significance of these elements for the Jews of old. It is in a Jewish order of symbolism that we shall find the explanation of baptism. And in context there, I think what Daniele is talking about is so, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to disparage the man because I I benefited greatly from his study. Uh, it was a great springboard for my own. But I think when he says Jews, he th- means also ancient Israelites. I think he's talking about the Old Testament symbols. Um, and so that's one of the goals of this series is, well, the title is A Catholic Biblical Theology of the Sacraments. So the idea is that uh, in order to understand the sacraments fully, we can't just look to the New Testament where we find them um, instituted, but rather to some of the symbols that we see in the Old Testament. And so there are four chapters in the book on Old Testament images of water, which is somewhat unusual for modern studies of baptism, um, at least biblical studies of baptism. Um, but there are a number of ways that water is used in the Old Testament that prefigure what the Lord does for us in the sacrament. So the first chapter is on water as an image of life. You can think, for example, of um, the river going out from the Garden of Eden, giving life to all the vegetation around it. Um, One of my favorite images, in fact, I think my favorite image from the Old Testament is the vision of Ezekiel, of the new temple, you know, and the river of life coming out from the new temple and giving life to all all of the land that it waters. Uh, And the reason that that's my favorite image, I think, um, from the Old Testament for baptism, or one of them at least, 
is that it gets at one of the key themes throughout my book, and that is the connection between baptism and worship, right? And it's the the life comes from the temple. It comes from God himself. Water on the natural uh, level gives life to basically everything, right? Either directly or indirectly, every living thing depends on water for its life. Uh, but water gets its life-giving power from the Lord himself. Uh, and so... Um, yeah, so that's why I love that image of the of the water coming out from the temple. It nicely illustrates how the life is rooted ultimately in God himself. Mm-hmm. In the second chapter, I talk about various images of water uh, as a symbol of death. This is something that's lost on a lot of modern Westerners. Uh, I was actually just earlier this afternoon on a Zoom call with a group of people with a class, and I pointed out how for us, I mean, we can flip the tap and water comes out. Right. And most of us um, aren't on a rickety boat on the Sea of Galilee uh, with the fear of a storm arising and capsizing us. You know, for the ancient Israelites, the waters were dangerous uh, and they were a source of um, potentially a source of death. Um, And death is one of the images that we see in a number of places in the New Testament um, associated with baptism. Um, Water was also... um, closely associated with liberation in the story of the Exodus, of course. Yeah. Um, And then finally, in the Old Testament, you also have this connection between water and purity. There are various rites in the book of Leviticus for people who had become impure. Um, And impurity for the ancient Israelites was actually primarily, um, it didn't really necessarily have anything to do with sin. It was actually natural things that occurred to human beings that could render them impure, that is, that could render them um, in an improper state to enter God's presence. Um, So these are some of the images that you see in the Old Testament associated with water that form uh, an important background to understanding the sacrament of baptism. You you said that uh, the idea of water is death is not one that that we come across very often. However, I live up on the other coast Mm -hmm. from you. I'm on the, on the, Pacific Northwest. And I'm close enough to the water where we have a tsunami warning system. Mm. And so I, I've very clearly think of those pictures of the the tsunami that, that hit Japan all those years ago and the amount of devastation that, that re uh, that wrought. But then I also was out um, with my priest a number of years ago, kayaking uh, in the, in the Puget Sound. Mm. And it, it gets really deep. Um, and I've been on lakes and, and boats many, many times, but there was something about being out in the middle of that water and seeing how very deep it was that it, it was almost like the water wanted to swallow me. And I just kind of felt this visceral feeling of, oh, this water is not, it's not safe, right? Going back to that whole idea of it's, it's good. It's yeah. good that it's here, but, but it's not necessarily safe. Yeah. Well, and it's funny that you should say that you felt like it was going to swallow you because of course that's also, um, an image that ancient Near Easterners would use for death. Death was like this mouth that would devour you. And there was a close connection between death and water in certain circumstances. Again, there was the positive image as well, of course. I mean, imagine living in a desert, you know, water is life. Um, But water could also be very threatening. Um, And yeah, we occasionally get those glimpses. uh, But I I would say, I think for most modern Westerners, they don't quite, they they don't have quite the same depth of appreciation of the danger that water can pose for people. Well, of course, we have that, uh, Paul uses that language of being baptized into death. Mm-hmm. 
and and I'm I'm that's one that that's always been kind of uh, maybe difficult to grasp. But as we're talking about this here in this context of that that idea of being buried with uh, Christ and baptism, mm-hmm. and then raised to walk in newness of life, but that that whole idea of leaving ourselves there in a in a kind of death and a participation in that death um, through that that act of baptism. Yeah. You also talked there about that fourth category, those ritual washings. And I think oftentimes we forget that the baptism that we participate in is, is not unique. I mean, it is unique in the fact of the way that, that uh, it exists, but even in uh, the book of Acts, there's a question of were you baptized with the baptism of, of Christ mm-hmm. or just the baptism of John, right? right? That, that, and perhaps there were other baptisms as well, all of these different ritual washings, that yes, the sacrament of baptism that we celebrate has been elevated because of Christ's work, but as a category, it wasn't unique in and of itself. Right. And it's uh, it's a mystery where baptism came from because, um, yes, you had plenty of these ritual washings, uh, but with most of them, uh, a person would administer the washing to him or herself. Right. The Leviticus prescribes, you know, you, you wait three days then you wash yourself. And then, you know, there are various prescriptions for different, um, I wouldn't call them offenses, just impurities, things that render a person impure. Uh, the one exception is the, um, the ordination rite in the Old Testament. That's the only ritual in the Old Testament in which one person washes another. So Moses washed Aaron and his sons with water, and then he closed them with, with a white garment and there's an anointing and all that. But all the other ones are self-administered. And so that's what made John the Baptist stick out <laughs> and so unusual, is that he was dunking other people under the water. When I uh, when I was a master's student at Notre Dame, I took a class with uh, John Meyer, uh, you know, God rest his soul. And uh, he said, yeah, the reason they, they, uh, they called John, John the plunger, because he was plunging people under the water, which nobody else really was doing. So it's, um, yes, Christian baptism isn't, uh, it doesn't come from nowhere. Uh, most New Testament scholars, I think, would suggest that uh, John's baptism forms a very important precursor to it. Uh, but it is unique uh, in what it does convey to us. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about those those four types mm-hmm. of baptism. Uh, how do we? How, what can we learn about our own experience of baptism? What God is doing in us in baptism through these these previous types? Yeah. So the first one that I mentioned was life. And there are all sorts of passages from the beginning of Genesis to the book of Ezekiel to the Psalms that speak about how water basically gives us life. And uh, in baptism, we're given this new life. Uh, Yes, Paul does speak of baptism as a kind of dying with Christ. We're buried with him in baptism. Uh, but it's not just a death. If it were, there wouldn't be much hope there, right? It's just right. a burial. Uh, but it's also that we rise with Christ to a newness of life, right? And so baptism gives us, uh, it imparts in us, the to us rather, the life of the Holy Trinity. It draws us into his own life uh, and um, transforms us. Mm-hmm. And so the church talks about there being um, 
a, a once for all ontological change mm-hmm. that something happens in, in in our very essence and who we are and and what our makeup is through this this physical act of water that something spiritually irrevocable is done mm-hmm. correct so what is that um uh, th- that's perhaps one of the hardest things to wrap our minds around uh, the, the concept of ontological change right. because we have so so few of them uh, in our in our world around us, right? In the sacraments, we have a couple. We've got the one with baptism, the one with confirmation, and the one with ordination. Mm-hmm. Um, but outside of that, is there something that can help us understand that kind of a framework of of what makes an ontological change? Well, it's. I think it's necessarily mysterious because it's not something that you can see with your eyes or observe mm-hmm. empirically. It doesn't matter how fine your instruments are, you're not going to find right. the change because it's a it's a change in the soul, right? Um, I'm trying to think if I can come up with an analogy for it. Um, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not sure that I can on the spot. Um, I don't know. Do you have any the, images in mind? This is. This is perhaps an imperfect analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of that process of becoming a parent. Mm. And the moment that you become a parent, you can never go back to not being a parent, even if, uh, God forbid, there is a loss of life right. and you lose a child. There's never a moment where you can go back to the way things were before. Um, and I I when I think of those ontological changes in the sacraments, that's that's kind of the perspective I take, that something so fundamental shifts that no matter what is done, no matter what things change around you, that thing can never change. Yeah. No, I like that. I think that's a really good, good analogy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So – as we look at, um, you, you took us through this this question of of life mm-hmm. uh, and, and the life giving nature of it, but let's mm-hmm. begin to look at some of the other types that Scripture offers us. Yeah. So the second one that I mentioned is death, right? And that one is not surprising because it is so prominent in Paul's uh, writings. Mm-hmm. Paul, that's it's one of the things that he emphasizes most with respect to baptism, especially in Romans six, and uh, the context for that. Um, discussion is so at the end of romans 5 paul says where grace where sin abounded grace abounded all the more right he's been talking about adam and about how he passed on sin to the whole human race and then yeah he ends by saying uh where sin abounded grace abounded all the more now in the beginning of the next chapter he asks well so what should we keep on sinning so that we can get more grace and he says no that's silly right we've died to sin so the death that paul speaks of in baptism is uh, a death to sin. And perhaps another way of thinking about that would be to see it as a kind of liberation, because Paul also speaks in the same chapter about no longer being enslaved to sin. There's a transfer of slavery, as it were, from slavery to sin, now to slavery to God. And the other thing about this image of death is that while it takes place for the first time in baptism, it really is an initiation into a whole pattern of life. Paul emphasizes this many, many times in his letters, how uh, it's this constant cycle of dying and rising again. Of course, not literally, but um, dying to ourselves, giving up things, renouncing things that are uh, either bad for us or that are goods that we sacrifice for a higher good. Um, 
and learning obedience and humility, the obedience and humility that characterized Christ's life. Another interesting thing about this image of death and baptism is uh, the way that Jesus speaks of his own death at one point. So in Mark chapter 10, James and John come up to him and say, we want you to do whatever we ask. You know, you want to be at your right and your left. And he asks them, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm going to be baptized? Right. And he, there he's not speaking of a literal baptism. He's speaking, of course, of his death. Right. Because he also asks, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And of course, later in Mark's gospel, he uses the imagery of the cup to speak of his impending death on the cross. So already in Jesus' own lifetime, he speaks of his death on the cross as a kind of baptism. And I suspect that's why the early Christians spoke of baptism as a kind of dying and rising with Christ. It probably came from his own interpretation of his death on the cross uh, as a kind of baptism. Um, but it's a death that uh, is not an end in itself, but leads to life. Uh, and it's a dying to sin, which is what resulted in our propensity to death um, so that we might have new life. Mm -hmm. Before we go to this, this third question of freedom and then to purity, um, I'm intrigued by the use that you have made of, of typology and of looking at, at various Old Testament pictures to help um, unpack and, and, and clarify what we mean by New Testament concepts. Um, it feels that we are in, in a, a place in our society where so much is put on facts and so much is put on empiricism that, that many times we try to read uh, the, the scriptures like we would read a, a newspaper or a textbook, that we're engaging with the scriptures for the purpose of gaining information uh, in, in kind of a information transfer kind of a way and an intellectual pursuit. Um, but the church has given us through the church fathers and the way that they engage with scriptures through even all the way up to the catechism and its section on scripture, a different way of reading and interpreting scripture. Yes, we look at it for that, that primary sense of scripture, but then we also go and look at, um, things that deal with analogy and things that deal with with spiritual senses how talk to us about how those spiritual senses enrich our understanding and our spiritual growth and maybe some ways that we could begin to approach scripture more than just for intellectual transfer yeah, uh, I think in the early church, the primary reason to read scripture was not, as you say, to get information, but to be transformed, right? To be transformed, to be to draw be drawn deeper into the mystery, uh, and to become more like Christ. And I think part of the way that we do that is I don't want to say by setting aside our modern tendencies, but maybe by uh, not reducing our approach to scripture to those things. Um, and when you do that, you can find very interesting things. One of um, one of my favorite sections in the chapter on death, um, I didn't come up with myself, or at least not the idea. The initial idea was proposed to me by one of the editors, and that was looking at um, these oracles in the prophet Ezekiel about the Prince of Tyre, right? And um, if you don't mind, I'll look, I'll, let me find the section in the book where I discuss that. Um, 
Yeah, so the Prince of Tyre in Ezekiel is portrayed as a kind of Adam figure, right? He is, he was on the mountain of God, um, he was in the garden, uh, all of these things, but then he he falls through pride, and because of that, he's brought low, right? And uh, as I like to say sometimes when I talk about this, there's a little Prince of Tyre in every one of us, right? This, this ego that wants to assert itself and dominate others and, you know, have its own way. Um, and so if we can see ourselves in somebody like the Prince of Tyre, then we'll recognize our need to live out this thing that was first given to us in our baptism, to die, to die to ourselves, to die to our self-centeredness, our self-centeredness, our sinful inclinations, uh, so that might we, so that we might achieve genuine life. One of the difficulties in doing that mm-hmm. is the um, the fact that in our own pride, uh, with with no external uh, feedback. We think that we're doing pretty good, yeah. right? I, I, I'm baptized. I, I, I go to mass every Sunday. I participate in the sacraments. Uh, I, I read the Bible. I'm, I'm doing okay. And there's something about being in community and, and being vulnerable with ourselves and learning this process of being honest with ourselves, um, that, without which, I, I don't know that we can we can properly grow. I think we need outside eyes, whether that be uh, a spouse, whether that be people in our parish community, uh, a spiritual director, or just real open honesty with the Holy Spirit in times of prayer and scripture reading to recognize and, and remind ourselves that, you know, we still, even even after our baptism, even after all of these acts of holiness, we still have a, a little bit of tire in us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If we didn't, Paul wouldn't have had to write all those letters. <laughs> you know? right. we, we can still, unfortunately, we can still sin after our baptism. Um, and I like what you said about um, the importance of being in community. Baptism is not an individualistic thing. It's um, it's an in- initiation into, into a community, into the church that Christ established. Um, and Paul emphasizes in numerous places the uh, our interdependence. I mean, nowhere I don't I don't think anywhere else more clearly than in First Corinthians twelve, which is another baptismal text. But he talks about the uh, mm-hmm. the interdependence of the different parts of the body and how some might you know deserve more honor than others, but each of them is uh, is important, contributes something beautiful to the whole. Yeah, and all of the language and the metaphors around baptism refer to community. There's that that idea of being part of the body of Christ, one member among, uh, but but the same body. But there's also the picture of family, that through baptism, we are born into the family of God. And uh, a metaphor which by its very essence indicates a, a community and a place of belonging. We're talking today with Father Isaac Morales. He's the author of the book, The Bible and Baptism, The Fountain of Salvation, part of the Catholic Biblical Theology of the Sacraments series on Baker Academic Press. There's much more to this topic as we're just barely scratching the surface. So don't go anywhere, but do come over and be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. Come and share your thoughts. There's so much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today about baptism uh, with Father Isaac Morales of Providence College. Uh, The book is The Bible and Baptism, The Fountain of Salvation. It's part of the Catholic Biblical Theology of the Sacraments series from Baker Academic Press. Father, again, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I am uh, I'm intrigued uh, about your your progression from civil engineer or or learning <laughs> about being I don't know if you ever went all the way through but you have a degree in civil engineering I do uh, and then made the jump to theology uh, and and then even further into biblical studies with your degree uh, in in Old Testament from uh, from Duke University then you went into teaching um, as a lay person. And then mm-hmm. lo and behold, all of a sudden you're a Dominican and then a Dominican priest. That's a, that's quite the journey. Um, I'm going to guess that when you first declared your major as a civil engineering, you were not expecting it to end up here. <laughs> not a bit, <laughs> not at all. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I, I uh, Last summer I did a series with John Seahorn on the book and uh, they insisted on a little biographical thing. And so I said, I, I, when I went off to college, I decided to major in civil engineering because in high school, I'd, I had always been kind of a math science person. I didn't really, um, I didn't really enjoy English as much or, humat- or history, that sort of thing. And ironically, I didn't like writing and I thought I was bad at it. <laughs> so it's kind of funny where I ended up. Um, but so I was doing civil engineering. I, um, I had always enjoyed, um, I don't know, I hadn't really taught formally, but I had, you know, tutored friends and such. And so I liked teaching. And so I thought, hey, I could, I could teach engineering. I think that would be cool. And so I, the summer after my sophomore year, I got a job with one of my uh, professors as a research assistant, because I realized if I was going to teach at the college level, because I don't have the courage to teach middle school or high school, (laughs) I was going to have to do some research. And so I, um, I worked for this professor that summer. This was the summer of 96. Uh, and the research bored me to death. And I thought, I can't do this. <laughs> so I'm going to have to figure out something else out. And that same year, I was um, getting more involved in our Newman Center. We didn't call it Newman Center at Duke, but, you know, our Catholic Student Center. Uh, and uh, so I, I'm sure you probably know who Tim Gray is, the president of the Augustine Institute. Yeah, I knew him way back when, before he was famous. He was he was doing a degree at Duke Divinity School, and uh, somebody recommended that he lead a Bible study for us uh, at Duke. So he did. I asked him to, and he and he graciously did so, uh, and that got me really interested in Scripture. Uh, but by that point, I was a junior, and it was probably a little bit too late to switch my major without doing an extra year. And Duke is not cheap, right. <laughs> so um, so I finished out the major. Then for a couple of years, I worked in the D.C. area at the U.S. Patent Office, uh, like you do. As as one does. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I did that for a couple of years. I was taking a couple of night classes in theology, um, but it was just I I wasn't going to be able to finish the master's in that way. I just didn't have the discipline. So uh, that's when I decided to apply to Notre Dame and a number of other places. And um, I decided this is what I was going to try to do. I was going to go do the master's. Do the doctor. I still wanted to teach at the college level, but um, now theology and Tim Gray nudged slash 
you know, pushed me strongly um, to do scripture. So that's what I ended up doing. I did the master's degree, did the doctorate at Duke, and then I got this job at Marquette. You know, doors kept opening. Um, and in the back of my mind, I suspected I might have a vocation, but I didn't want anything to do with it. I was like, no, I want to be single. Uh, not single. I want to be a layperson, get married, have a family and all that. And um, God is more stubborn than I am. So uh, eventually he won out. <laughs> Thanks be to God. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I ended up joining the Dominicans back, uh, gosh, 11 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the draw towards scripture. And, and we talked in the last segment just a little bit about the various senses of scripture, the different ways that we approach scripture. Um, there is there's something about... Uh, recognizing the the diversity and the breadth and the mystery of scripture and the way that God reveals himself to us through scripture, the living aspect of scripture that, um, that opens up possibilities, right? It's not, if, if we, if we're just looking at it as a text and nothing more than a text, then, then it has certain things to communicate and it can have nuance and it can have uh, complexity and that's all nice and good. But there's something about it being that that living document that God uses in a in an active way to reveal Himself to us um, that just puts it on a whole different category. There's an excitement about coming and approaching it again and looking at it again and a, and a challenge. Yeah. Uh, it's funny as you were talking, I was thinking back. I remember when I was an undergraduate reading a piece by uh, Cardinal O'Connor. God rest his soul. And he, um, he's talking about vocation and, uh, and what about people who don't follow the vocation? And he talked about this passage in Mark chapter 10, uh, the rich young man, mm-hmm. uh, who comes and, uh, Jesus says, you know, if you want to have treasure in heaven, go sell all you have. Um, well, at first I think he says that Jesus loved him and he said, go sell right. all you have and, uh, follow me. And he goes away sad. Well, um, and I felt, and I feel like I was that guy for a while. Not that I was, not that I had, you know, that I was wealthy or anything, but like I wasn't willing to let go. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, the Lord was patient with me, <laughs> and I came around. I had always read that for for a number of years as just another instance where someone came and tried to trip up Jesus, and he gave an answer that kind of confounded them. And mm. and it was those words that he looked at him with love. Mm-hmm. That that maybe about three years ago made me realize that the only difference between any of the apostles and this man was whether or not he was willing to follow, right? Mm-hmm. That, that this very well could have been another of the disciples, one of those, and depending on, you know, the chronology of it could have been one of the 12, uh, were it not for his own resistance to letting go of that thing. And how, how much do we let ourselves uh, keep ourselves from entering into the fullness of intimacy with Christ because of that one thing that we want to hold on to? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of being an intimate relationship with Christ, one of the ways that we share in the divine life of Christ is through our baptism, where we receive the Holy Spirit as that first initiation and sacrament. Um, mm-hmm. And we've been walking through, uh, along with your book, The Bible and Baptism on Baker Academic, uh, the the various kind of types that, that go into uh, our understanding of baptism. So we've already talked about baptism as life and baptism as death. 
This next one I think is is a perfect um, segue point. It's the baptism as as deliverance, as we're talking mm-hmm. about those things that we hold on to, deliverance from maybe our own best intentions and into that that divine life, which is uh, exceedingly abundantly, Scripture says, beyond all we can ask or think. Right. So let's yep. let's move now into that that specific type. Yeah. So of course, the key image there is the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. And uh, as you would imagine, the fathers speak about this all over the place. Um, yeah, the Exodus is a literal liberation, right? The Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians, and the Lord leads them to freedom. Um, but one of the points that I make, and one of the things that I love about the Exodus story is that uh, freedom, well, I was going to say freedom is not an end in itself. I don't know that I would put it that way so much as that um, Scripture gives us a much more robust understanding of freedom and one that challenges us. Uh, and I first came across this idea uh, in then Cardinal Ratzinger's book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, in that opening chapter, yeah. where he talks about how the Exodus is not just about emancipation. It's not just about liberation from actual slavery, but it finds its end in worship, right? So uh, the first thing that God says to Moses that he's going to go to Pharaoh is, let my people go that they might hold a festival to me mm-hmm. in the wilderness. And over and over again, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says uh, that the Lord says, let my people go that they may serve me, that they may worship me. Um, And this is where genuine freedom comes, because uh, if you don't worship God, you're worshiping something else. And ultimately, that means you're worshiping yourself, Mm -hmm. right? You're clinging to something that you desire more than God. And that can be yourself. It can be money. It can be sex. It can be power. It can be whatever. It can be any, really any created thing. Clinging to any created thing instead of God um, is enslaving. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, yeah, it's only when we realize that God is the one who deserves our complete worship, uh, that will become free and that we can have all these other things in the proper ordering. Well, and I think it's uh, John Paul II, St. Pope John Paul II, who says that we are free uh, to choose the right, right? The whole Mm -hmm. purpose of our freedom is not just um, so that we can choose whatever feels right to us at the moment or whatever seems seems pleasurable to us at the moment, mm-hmm. but that we are, our, our freedom exists for the sake of love and for the sake of worship and for the sake of choosing the, that which is, is the ultimate good. And it's not a freedom to choose the wrong. Right. Yeah. And I didn't come up with this image myself. I've read it. I think I heard then Father Barron use it. And I know others have used it. Um, if you think about an athlete, you know, think about basketball, uh, who's the freer basketball player, Michael Jordan or me? Michael Jordan in his prime or me in my prime, right? He can do far more. He's got this freedom to uh, do amazing things on the basketball court. Or think of a musician, right? Uh, you know, the the virtuoso who has pra- put in the time and has the talent, right? He's far free. He can play Mozart exquisitely. I'm not free to do that because I gave up piano years ago and I didn't practice enough and and I probably don't have the, quite the same talent as as you know the the professional you know musician but uh that's the kind of freedom that's most um that's most important and that's uh most genuinely free I think. Mm-hmm. I want to get through this last um 
this last type because there's one other thing I want to touch on before we go. And that's so mm-hmm. uh, now we also have baptism as as purity as and we see this in in uh, I think First Peter where he says that. Uh, we are saved. Baptism now saves us, not through the washing way of dirt, but of providing us a clean conscience, of washing us of a clean conscience. And of course, we take that into Augustine where he talks about uh, that complete washing from original sin. And I'm sure that that there are other things that I'm missing. So what does it mean? What's the typology for us of seeing baptism as purity? Well, it's interesting because in ancient Israel, there were two different kinds of impurities. There were Ritual, well, <laughs> I'm going to call them ritual impurity, even though the term is not 100% accurate. It's difficult really to um, find a good term for them. But there are some kinds of impurity that had to do with corpses or natural bodily functions like giving birth mm-hmm. or a woman's cycle or other kinds of emissions, that sort of thing. It's things that um, you can't really control and, in fact, just happen naturally. And those things would render a person impure. Now, what that meant was that until the person had performed the proper ritual to regain purity, the person couldn't approach God in the temple and couldn't worship, right? And so there you see that purity is primarily about being in close, in intimacy with God, right? Through acts of worship. And any parent of a toddler knows that after they go to the bathroom, they have to create, they have to go through the ritual, uh, the ritual <laughs> washing before they can come up and give us a hug, right? There's, there's, right. Let's, yeah. let's, let's make sure that we wash our hands, get that stuff right. off, and then, then you can come, right? Right. Uh, but then you also had in ancient Israel, you had um, what, for lack of a better word, is called moral impurity. And these were particularly heinous crimes. Um, murder, you know, uh, adultery, that sort of thing, infidelity. And um, those, strangely, in the Old Testament, those, you could still approach God. In fact, sometimes you had to in order to perform, you know, to offer sacrifices, that sort of thing. But if those sins piled up in the people of Israel, then they would be, uh, God said he would kick them out of the land. They would be exiled, which... The purpose of the land is to have a temple to be in communion with God. So the result is the same as the temporary uh, banishment that ritual impurity would result in. Now, when you get to the New Testament, in the Gospels, you still have uh, instances of ritual impurity. Like when Jesus heals the leper, uh, it's interesting what he says. He doesn't ask, Lord, if you will, you can heal me. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me pure, make me clean. What he wants is he wants to be able to return to the temple, mm-hmm. right? And his skin condition, which probably wasn't actually leprosy, but whatever, this skin condition prevented him from worshiping. Um, but in Paul's letters uh, and in the and other parts of the New Testament, it, the emphasis is more on this notion of moral impurity. Uh, and so baptism, what baptism does is it cleanses us of this, well, of sin, basically of original sin, and makes us fit to worship God. The last thing I want to talk about, and we don't have a lot of time to do that, mm-hmm. um, is we talked earlier about baptism being one of of a plurality of baptisms. And we see that uh, here particularly in the fact that when Jesus gives us the command, he says, uh, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit. So that, that mm-hmm. tells us that there is a way to baptize that is not 
this baptism? What does it mean for us, and what what does Scripture reveal to us about this baptism in the name of the divine? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked that, because this is actually my favorite chapter in the whole book, (laughs) Baptism in the Name, Um, because I think, I argue in the book, and I hope I'm right, because I think it's really cool if it is, that baptism in the name is associated with um, the Old Testament understanding of the name of God. There was there were a couple of different aspects of the name theology in the Old Testament. One that you see in Deuteronomy and in a couple of other texts is that the name was the way that the ancient Israelites spoke about God's presence and God the way God himself speaks about his presence. He says that he'll make his name dwell mm-hmm. first in the, in the movable sanctuary and then in the temple that Solomon builds in Jerusalem. Um, But the other association with name is it's closely associated with uh, offering sacrifice, right? So in Genesis, there are a couple of places where Abraham or Isaac sets up an altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. Or uh, one of the most amusing stories in the Old Testament, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. He says, you call on the name of Baal and I'll call on the name of my God and we'll see who's the real God. Right. And of course, uh, it's it's the Lord who answers, and he comes and he consumes the sacrifice. And so I argue in the book that baptism in the name means uh, being incorporated into this new temple where God dwells and where we offer him sacrifice. You know, Paul speaks in a number of places, especially in Romans 12, of offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, mm-hmm. um, which is your rational or your spiritual worship. Um and so I think that's the significance of the name when it comes to baptism. It's this, uh, it's becoming a temple for God's dwelling within you. Uh, and the temple is the place where you offer sacrifice. And sacrifice, of course, is worship. And as I suggested earlier in the broadcast, worship is where we find our true freedom because we recognize that we're not God and that we depend on him uh, and we owe to him uh, this worship. Yeah. The book is The Bible and Baptism, The Fountain of Salvation by Father Isaac Morales. Uh, It's part of the Catholic Biblical Theology of the Sacraments series from Baker Academic. That's a series that's still in progress, but there are a number of them that are already out there. All excellent. I encourage you to go and pick them up. Father Morales, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. If you missed any part of my conversation with Father Morales or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, Have no fear, all of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And if you're looking for more, I've got good news. There is more to this conversation. Each and every week, we record an extra segment that we make available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air, and in gratitude, we give them a couple of extra questions with our guests and a deeper dive into the topic. You can learn more there at OutsideTheWalls.com by clicking the Patreon link there in the menu. There you can go through and look at some of the older extra segments that are now made available to the public and consider being a part of that ongoing support community. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from Church History. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, magisterial documents, biblical commentaries, and so much more. You can learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading today from scripture comes from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans, chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin 
that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That reading comes again from a letter of St. Paul to the Romans, chapter 6. In this passage, we hear echoes of other statements that Paul has made about the Christian life. I have died, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Um, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's this definitive change. There's something about our baptism in which there is a definitive change from one state to another, this ontological change the church talks about, that we have changed our very essence of who we were. Um, that Paul here in Romans is saying, I used to be a slave to sin, but in baptism I died. That person no longer exists. Now there is a new person, this person who has been raised with Christ, sharing in a death like his, raised in a resurrection like his. And now this new life uh, is one that is vivified by the divine life, by God's presence with us. We died in a death like his. We have been raised in a life like his. And now Christ lives in us and through us, and we now live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. Our reading from church history expands and explains more fully what it means for us to have died to sin, and to enter into this new life empowered by the Spirit. This comes from a book on the Holy Spirit by St. Basil the Great. Our Lord made a covenant with us through baptism in order to give us eternal life. There is in baptism an image both of death and of life, the water being the symbol of death, the Spirit giving the pledge of life. The association of water and the Spirit is explained by the twofold purpose for which baptism was instituted, namely, to destroy the sin in us so that it could never again give birth to death, and to enable us to live by the Spirit and so win the reward of holiness. The water into which the body enters, as into a tomb, symbolizes death. The Spirit instills into us His life-giving power, awakening our souls from the death of sin 
to the life that they had in the beginning. This, then, is what it means to be born again of water and the Spirit. We die in the water, and we come to life again through the Spirit. To signify this death, and to enlighten the baptized by transmitting to them knowledge of God, the great sacrament of baptism is administered by means of a triple immersion and the invocation of each of the three divine persons. Whatever grace there is in the water comes not from its own nature, but from the presence of the Spirit, since baptism is not a cleansing of the body, but a pledge made to God from a clear conscience. As a preparation for our life after the resurrection, our Lord tells us in the gospel how we should live here and now. He teaches us to be peaceable, long-suffering, undefiled by desire for pleasure, and detached from worldly wealth. In this way, we can achieve by our own free choice the kind of life that will be natural in the world to come. Through the Holy Spirit, we are restored to paradise. We ascend to the kingdom of heaven, and we are reinstated as adopted sons. Thanks to the Spirit, we obtain the right to call God our Father. We become sharers in the grace of Christ. We are called children of light, and we share in everlasting glory. In a word, every blessing is showered upon us, both in this world and in the world to come. As we contemplate them even now, like a reflection in a mirror, it is as though we already possessed the good things our faith tells us that we shall one day enjoy. If this is the pledge, what will the perfection be? If these are the first fruits, what will the full harvest be? That reading again comes from a book on the Holy Spirit by St. Basil the Great. There's a concept that St. Basil brings up here towards the end that I, I just love. It's this idea and this reminder that our baptisms, while efficacious, it's not just an event. It's for a purpose. It in, in brings us into this family. It gives us life, most certainly. Uh, but he mentions it as a preparation for our life after the resurrection, that it's supposed to have effect, and that by living in this manner, by living according to the Spirit which we've been given through baptism, we, and he says, in this way we can achieve by our own free choice the kind of life that will be natural in the world to come, that by living a life of holiness here we are practicing and getting used to what will be the norm when we arrive at the beatific vision. May that be true for each of us. May we experience in our baptism this week the fruits of eternal life. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show was brought to you by Anil Thomas and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link to learn more. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.
This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.